Good afternoon, Spark. Thank you, Junior and the worship team, and for all of you who've contributed to our service this afternoon. What a gift it is to continue to worship together. Um, I just wanted to let you know I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm going to continue our Luke series today. The title of our message this afternoon is My Father's House, and it's from our Luke series, chapter two. And we're going to kind of look through this passage together and do what we do, break it down into sections, and try to see what Jesus might be saying to us today. All right. So, very quickly, before we go into in-depth details regarding the temple in Jerusalem, and I know as sparkers, you probably won't ask the question, what does this mean? Because hopefully we're all fairly well trained at this point to say we know that there's value in studying the historical context. But let's just stop for a moment and take a beat. We're going to hear these words from David Stern from his commentary on the um, complete Jewish Bible, his translation and study Bible. He says this, the customs and traditions that we are about to study come directly from the Bible. Often identified as Jewish customs, they are also biblical customs. Thus, they invite all believers to be blessed by a study and understanding of them, providing a deeper, richer understanding of the Jewish background of the New Testament. What better way to understand Jesus than to study the context of his life on earth as a religious first century Jew? Amen? Totally agree. So we're going to look at the context of the temple in Jerusalem, and then try to see how that shaped Jesus and Jesus's worship life and his own um, perspective on the world. Now, we know it's important to understand this from a first century Jewish context, because when I searched Jesus' father's house, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house from the passage, just Googling search online, I found these two really cute crafts um, that show Jesus in a church. So, we need to remember that Jesus did not grow up in a church. He didn't go to church. Um, if you go to Israel and you ask your tour guide, take me to the church Jesus went to, they will not be able to do yet that because Jesus was a Jew and he went to synagogue in his own community and to the house of God, to the temple when he was in Jerusalem. So hopefully we're just going to try to start to set Jesus in his first century Jewish context as we read through Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21 and following. So on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, um, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now we just stop right there and remember that when Kevin was talking about the naming moment for John with Zechariah, he mentioned to you all that it's really one of the earliest places that we have in biblical writing of a naming ceremony for a son at the eighth day. And here we have the name happening and also the circumcision, which of course we know is dated back to Torah when we are given the command to circumcise sons on the eighth day. This covenant, which reminds us of the covenant that God made with Abraham, who was older than eight when it happened. Um, this covenant is called the covenant of circumcision or a brit milah, and it comes from Genesis chapter 17. So that's that context. And they're participating in that covenant making ceremony, identifying themselves as part of the covenant people of God of Israel by circumcising their son on the eighth day and giving him the name Yeshua, uh, God saves. 
God's salvation. When the time came, verse 22, for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So what's happening here? Well, this is talking about a passage back in Leviticus chapter 12, where the purification of a mother takes place 40 days after the birth of a son. So we have the circumcision happening and the naming happening at the eighth day, but now 40 days later, we'll have this purification of the mother. Um, And impurity, by the way, was not to be confused with sin. Impurity was a daily issue that people would be struggling with, right? Um, Whether you had an issue of um, menstruation or emission for the men or an issue of a skin disease or whatever, these were all different types of impurity. And there was a way in which the Bible said, here's how we take care of that. And you can read all about that in, in Leviticus. So this is what the woman did after childbirth. To regain purity, um, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem and participate in ritual immersion or mikvah, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um, And also you would make an offering. Okay, you might have a mikvah in your community, near your synagogue, but here they're going and they're going to the temple in Jerusalem and they do have ritual immersion pools, mikvahot, all throughout that location. So that's what they're doing. Verse 23, they're doing this because as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, again, this is done for the dedication of the firstborn, which is called Pidyon Haben, and it's from Exodus 13. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. This is still practiced among Jews today, but in a different way. Obviously, the temple no longer stands and there's no more sacrifices. Now, in Leviticus 12, it tells us that the offering that Mary and Joseph are giving is the offering for the poor, right? That they're not bringing the most extravagant offerings. So we have a little bit of some indication as to what Jesus's childhood may have been like and the context into which he was born, that they are bringing the offerings for the poor and not um, the most extravagant possibility here. So they're doing bringing the two pigeons or two young turtle doves. Okay, let's keep reading. So now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, Shimon, and he was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Let's stop again here for a quick moment. Simeon, Shimon in Hebrew means here, Shema, here, listen. So this is a person whose very name means that they are waiting and listening for God to do the new thing that God has promised, right? He's old, he's been there for a long time, and he is waiting for this consolation of Israel, which is a hint back towards Isaiah chapter 40. And traditional messianic hopes in the first century included national autonomy for Israel, so like Rome gets kicked out and we get to be in charge again, the return of exiled Jews who had been dispersed um, around the world, either left and remaining in Babylon or towards Assyria in the north or in the Greco-Roman Empire or even in Egypt in the south. So the return of these exiled Jews, the end of death, poverty, disease, despair, resurrection of the dead, final judgment, and the eternity of the messianic age. So actually a, a bit of what we expect, isn't it? It's our expectation for what will come when Jesus comes again is that we will have this messianic age come full to pass. So that's what he's waiting for. And this is set back in Isaiah. Verse 27. So Shimon now moved by the spirit. He goes into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, 
as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Remember, that's what Jesus' name means, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So here we have this beautiful image and scene of Shimon, Simon, embracing Jesus the Messiah and adding his own voice and testimony to the voice of the angels and the shepherds, declaring the Messiah and declaring the good news for both Israel and Gentiles. Super amazing, awesome. Okay, verse 33 proceeds. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And that is a powerful phrase. And I think for those of us who know the rest of the Jesus story, this is foreshadowing, right? We know that on the cross, Jesus' side will be pierced um, into the depths of his being and that the water will pour out and that Mary will be witnessing Jesus' death and burial on the death and burial at that time and that that will be heartbreaking for a mother to see. And so Simeon foreshadows that event and foreshadows Mary's own heartbreak as she watches the suffering of, of her son. Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of, of Jerusalem. This is amazing. First of all, Anna's a prophet, Anna, which is fantastic and amazing. We don't know much about her, and we actually don't even know what she says. We just know that she believes and she witnesses and she shares with everybody. We also know that she's faithful, that she experienced a significant loss early on, that she became a widow, marginalized on the outsides of society without those safety nets, so found refuge in the temple of the Lord, found space where she could continue to live out her life, um, in probably in service to God, taking care of, of the pilgrims who would come and go, of the priests that would come and go, and the Levites, and being in that space. We know she is a daughter of Penuel and from the tribe of Asher. And what's just sort of interesting is in Hebrew, her name would be Hannah, Hannah, but Penuel, which means grace, Anna, Chen is grace in Hebrew, daughter of, for the daughter of the face of God. And she is from the tribe Asher, which means happy. So just kind of, that's what we know about her. Super beautiful, and wonderful. We know she's a prophet and that's great but that's it. We don't know much more than that. We know that this gives continued sort of testimony and witnessing to the anticipation of who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. So when Joseph and Mary now had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth and the child grew and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. It's a really fun echo here back to the story of Samuel um, in our in our Bible. So now every year, verse 41, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And I would also just note, according to the commands of God, that you have to go up for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover time. 
Um, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. And then they began looking for him among their friends and relatives. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, whew, another interesting foreshadowing echo, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. I just let you know that this was something very common in the day, um, not to not tell your parents where you were for three days, but to sit and debate Torah amongst the teachers in these courts or porticos in the temple. And there's stories in ancient rabbinic literature of young, young kids sitting and listening at the feet of the rabbis and sitting with cupped ears, right, trying to sort of lean in and hear every word that the teachers had to share as they were interpreting and discussing and debating Torah and talking about all the things that were important to everybody. So that's the scene that's there, and Jesus is participating in that scholarly debate. Verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I don't think that they were maybe astonished that he was bright and could have this level of discourse. I, I think most kids that are precocious show that early on, <laughs> but I do think that they're astonished that he would disappear for three days and not tell them because his mother says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then they went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So that's the end of our reading and our section today. This message, as I've mentioned, is called My Father's House. Let's look at a few things that we're going to note right away as we've looked through this. Jesus is from a pious, humble, likely poor, religious family. They are Jewish, Torah-observant, covenant-keeping, sacrifice-making, offering-making, festival-keeping, Jewish pilgrimage-making, studious-type family. So Luke's going to describe Mary and Joseph's fidelity to Torah, and this is going to now provide insights into Jesus's own home life, his religious dedication, even in the midst of the Caesar and the powers of the empire that we talked about last week. So in the midst of all those stressors, in the midst of all those pushes, they're going to be observant to God's commands and continue to participate in those pilgrimage festivals and everything else. And that's the type of home life that Jesus had. This is how he comes to know the Father, through the study of the text and through these rituals and traditions and customs that they're all keeping in the home. Now, at this moment then, Jesus refers to the house of the Lord, which is often really the reference for it in like the Psalms and other places like, where shall we go? I lift my eyes up to the house of the Lord, all of those types of things. Those verses throughout, he's going to refer to the house of the Lord as his father's house, which is a unique framing when you're not talking about your father of your family of origin, of Joseph, right? Now, of course, those of us who've been listening in and hearing genealogies and hearing the story, we know that 
Jesus really has two fathers, that he has an earthly father, his adoptive father, Joseph, and then God is his father. So this is definitely a double meaning here that Jesus is giving um, in this in this moment, and that might be why they're having some difficulty understanding. Um, and he's going to continue to sort of push on that. And in other times and other places, as we're reading the Gospel of John and things, that Jesus will continue to use this framing. Um, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not true, I would have told told you those types of things. So let's look then at what might be happening. Here's kind of the thing I want to land on for the rest of our time. How would it feel to lose someone, a 12-year-old child that you desperately love, and you've also been told by the angels that this is the Son of God? So you've lost the Son of God, and you are frantically searching about and cannot find him for three days. I'm going to suggest that by day three, despair and hopelessness have set in along with constancy of anxiety and fear. I can't even imagine having to go to bed night one and night two of just having to even give up that search. Wouldn't you just keep searching over and over and over again? And in your mind, you might be saying things like, he would never not come find us. Something terrible must have befallen him. What if he's been eaten by wild animals? What if he's fallen into a ditch? You're going to have all of these ideas. I think for any one of us who's ever been in charge of a small child, even for just a few moments, even if it's not our own, if that child hides in the garment rack in the department store or any of those things, if they're out of like, the heart beating moment of fear that that is um, and pushing through into that moment, how frightened they must be. They don't know what's happening with their son. Now, some of us might be willing to say, well, they should have kept track of him from the very beginning. How, was the, how did they not notice that he wasn't with them as they proceeded on their pilgrimage home? But that was actually very common to have a large extended family and to assume that this young man, um, who is he is of sort of manhood at this time, is within the community, that Jesus is there. So they're not to be faulted for pulp poor parenting practices. This would be common in the pilgrimage moments as you travel to and from Jerusalem and Nazareth for these moments. So they are frustrated. And Jesus says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Now, I want to just note for a moment that when Jesus finds refuge in this moment, when he goes to learn and to study, we would probably look back on this time 2,000 years ago and say a lot was wrong in the world. The empire was looming. Things were difficult. Rome was in charge. The high priest had to check their clothes out from, from Rome every single morning and return them every single night. Taxes were 90%. And we would also note that because of the conversations Jesus will have with the religious leaders, that there was corruption, that there was hypocrisy that needed to be addressed and all of that. And yet, we would also have to find from these stories that there is something life-giving for Jesus and his family to be present in the house of the Lord, in the Father's house in Jerusalem, and in these conversations with these religious leaders. Now, as we talk about coronavirus time and pandemic and constancy of injustices and concerns about corruption and all that we see going on in the world and the massive inequality, um, white supremacy, lack of equity, the concerns for those who are most impacted right now throughout the world, I think there's many of us that look to the church and see all the problems with it. We see the people 
that claim religious liberty and don't wear a mask to protect their neighbor or others. We see people um, not caring about all brothers and sisters, not caring about justice, not speaking up when they see corruption and injustice in the world. And we start to wonder, because that is the primary thing that we're seeing on the news regarding or on our social media feeds, like this is what our religious world looks like. I've run into and I've felt myself, and I'm sure you felt too, so many times where we've asked the question, is this the movement I want to be part of? What is happening here? Is that the church I want to be part of? Is this Jesus thing still for real? Do I want to be part of this movement? And I want to say yes. And the reason why is because I want to be found in the Father's house. Now, I recognize that this is like a bit of a metaphor and a stretch that we're going for today. But when I think through this story, and Jesus' response to his parents, like, where have you been? We've been searching everywhere for you. And he's like, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? I think I want to ask the question, am I living my life in such a way that the first place my parents would look for me would be in my father's house? Are they wanting, would, would people even, would I be able to say, didn't you know that I would be here? So here's a couple notes I want to leave us with. The world is full of Jewish followers whose voices right now are not being heard on the news or in social media. They're not being heard in our neighborhoods or our nations. The world is full of Jewish follow of Jesus followers who deeply care for the way of Jesus, for the house of the Father, who deeply care for the way of justice to be found, who regardless of the corruption in the world, regardless of the corruption even within our own religious systems, we can still find the way of Jesus here, and we can still find hope here. And we don't want to walk away from our Father's house. In fact, it is being in the house of the Father and providing structure for rit ritual and tradition and prayer practices and study that's going to keep us grounded in the way of Jesus. If we're going to abandon the Father's house right now, if that would be the last place that anybody would ever look for any one of us, because we are so wanting to distance ourselves from the, um, the false images that are put out there by people who claim Jesus or by people who are crafting those images to make it sound like the majority voices. Then when we abandon that house, we also abandon all the other brothers and sisters who are in that house who are seeking out the way of the father. Jesus says that no one comes to the Father but through him. And while we might look at what that means for a salvific purpose at the end of time, I think we also need to acknowledge the fact that we come to the Father through the ways of Jesus. And the ways of Jesus, this radical love, this radical welcome, this radical pursuit of care and concern for those on the margins, when we do that, we will be in a great cloud of witnesses in very good company. Whether we're talking about people of the long past who have been righteous Gentiles um, fighting against Nazi Germany and saving Jews in their homes, then when we're talking about people who pursued um, abolition and anti-slavery movements in the U.S. long ago or women's rights and suffrage movements all ago, brothers and sisters in Christ who perceived their very adherence to Christ as meaning that they must then join the pursuits of abolition and suffrage. When we 
look back at these histories long ago, we can also see people today on the front lines around the world and even here in our own nation who have given their very lives to the radical, nonviolent pursuit of justice that's demonstrated through the person and teachings of Jesus. This week we lost a wonderful leader this last week, uh, John Lewis. And Congressman John Lewis, an incredible civil rights icon, one of the speakers for the March on Washington, one of the original freedom writers, of course, um, led the movement for desegregating lunch counters and trying to find justice and all of that. When I first heard of his passing this week, it almost felt like in these moments of just despair, and pandemic and everything else and so much corruption and feeling like there's no justice on the horizon that it felt like, oh my goodness, I can't even, I don't have space to process our nation losing his voice right now, right? And then, you know, the more that you start to sit and listen and hear all that he did and all that he pursued and the reasons why he did it, um, you can continue with me to say, I'm not going to be found anywhere else but in my father's house because I want to be with him. I want to be with the voices that stood for justice for the last 2,000 years. I want to be the voices that stood up against corruption within the church, within our nation, within the world. I want to stand with those voices. I want to be in the Father's house. There's no other place that I want to be. And I want to be part of a community that gives me ritual and tradition and prayer and study that continues to give me opportunities to be found living and walking in the footsteps of Jesus and in the footsteps of the saints that have followed after and who have continued to lead us in this way. So if you're feeling despair, if you're feeling as though there's no hope, I'm going to invite you, all of us, to double back down, to jump back into the Father's house, to jump back into opening up our Bibles. I know that's probably the last thing we've been doing lately is we've just been trying to keep up with the news and figure out what everything's been. Open up a story. Open up and start to push yourself back into these Jesus moments. Start to Listen to the people who have gone before us and who've led the way and shown us how to live this radical love of Christ. Watch Good Trouble with John Lewis this week. Um, listen to the voice of Reverend William Barber, right, who is continuing through the people's, the Poor People's Campaign for to advocate for justice and the eradication of poverty in our nation. You know, he says this beautiful quote, there is not some separation between Jesus and justice. To be a Christian is to be concerned with what's going on in the world. I want to be found amongst these leaders. I want to be found amongst Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Lucretia Mott and the Grimke sisters and Ida Wells and, and so many others, Charles Finney and others who, who claim Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, who continued to push all of us into the ways of Jesus for the sake of this world. We're here because of them. We're living lives different because of what they won. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 10 years ago, a thousand years ago, we're living in a different world because of their work. So here's what I want to say. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on the Father's house. Don't abandon your fellow believers. 
We're all here and we need one another to pursue this way of Jesus. Get into good trouble and let's pray that when others look at us, they say, hey, where have you been? We'll be able to say, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Let's follow the example of Jesus and try to continue to pursue all of his ways. Amen.